My, uh, my plan is to begin this evening with a little bit of uh, Pali chanting. Uh, we'll see how it goes. There's so much pollen in the air right now. My throat feels um, coated. <laughs> so we'll see how it goes. I may have to uh, stop a little early. So you can just uh, relax, maybe close your eyes and listen. Paritavana metam Sameta badanta Awikita chita paritam banantu Samanta chakavalesu Atragachantu devata Sadamang munirajasa Sunantu sagamogatam Sage kamecharupe Girisikaratate chantalike vimane Diperate chagame Taruvanagahane gehawatum hikete Bumachayantu deva Jalla talawisa me Titanta santike Yamunivaravachanam sadavome sunantu Dhamma savanakalo ayang badanta Dhamma savanakalo ayang badanta Dhamma savanakalo ayang badanta Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Karani Amata Kusalena Yantam Santam Padam Abhisamecha Sakko Vujucha Sujucha Suacho Chasamudu Anatimani Santu sakocha subarocha apakicho cha salahu kauti 
Santindriocha nipakocha apagabokulesu ananugido nachakudam samachare kinchi yena winyu pare upavadeyam sukino va kemino hontu Sabbe satha bhavantu sukitata Yeke chi panabutati Tassavata varava anavasesa Digavaye mahantava Majimarasaka Dita va yeva adita yechadure va santi avidure Bhutava sambhave siva sabbe sata bhavantu sukitata Sometimes I think it's really kind of powerful to hear the, some of what the Buddha taught in the original Pali language. Uh, the first part of what I just chanted is uh, called an invitation to the devas. And uh, it's traditional to do this kind of chanting before chanting something like the, the Metta Sutta, which I chanted about the first half of it. I didn't do the whole thing. Uh, the Metta Sutta, it's actually called the Karaniya Metta Sutta. And it's, uh, it's part of a group of um, chants and uh, suttas and teachings that are called parittas. And uh, the word means uh, blessing or protection. Last night, Rebecca spoke about uh, metta as a kind of protection. And uh, it's chanted for that purpose, as a protection, as a blessing. And it's one of the most beloved of the Buddha's discourses, the Karaniya Metta Sutta. Um, It's probably recalled and chanted around the world more frequently than any other single teaching in the Pali canon. It's been described by, uh, this was actually Andy Olensky, who's a Pali scholar and director at the Berry Center for Buddhist Studies down the road. He called it, uh, in one thing he wrote, a jewel sparkling softly but compellingly throughout the centuries, which I think is a lovely way to describe this uh, teaching. So I want to go through the words of the sutta. I mean, these are, this is what the Buddha said about metta and We're practicing it, so it might be nice to look at what he said in this short, beautiful teaching. Hopefully we'll find some ways that his words apply to what we're trying to do here and uh, how it applies not only in our meditation practice but in our life in a broader sense. The sutta has the form of a, uh, really of a poem, uh, at least the way it gets translated. 
but it has a structure that's kind of in three parts and it has a certain um, way that it parallels the teachings of, um, in the Four Noble Truths of the Eightfold Noble Path, the path of practices in, um, in eight steps, not sequential steps, uh, that the Buddha recommended for the practice of liberation. And these, the Eightfold Path is often broken down into teachings of uh, sila, samadhi, and panya, of ethical conduct, of concentration and mind development and meditation and wisdom. And the poem, uh, the teaching of the Metta Sutta, follows that um, form in some ways. <clears throat> and so uh, in that uh, vein, in that understanding, then the first part of this sutta actually focuses on uh, sila, on our conduct a lot, addresses it very directly. And the Buddha taught that our, our meditation practice will never really unfold and develop without this basis of um, commitment to living harmlessly, an engagement with the precepts, we could say, uh, commitment to ethical conduct. So the first part of uh, the chant uh, goes something like this. This is one translation. This is what's done by one who is skilled in goodness and who reaches towards that most peaceful state. Let them be able, honest and upright, well-spoken, gentle, and without too much pride. Let them not do even the slightest thing that others who are wise would speak against. So I left out a little bit that I'm going to get to in a moment. Sometimes we, we can, um, I don't know, we, we offer the precepts at the beginning of the retreat. We talk about sila then, and, and we can have the attitude, okay, I, I did that, I got that, that's all set. And then now I can go on to the real thing, you know, the meditation, as though it's something that we, we kind of get it in place and then that's it. But um, this foundation of this practice of sila is, is something that we engage with, with constantly throughout our meditative life, throughout our spiritual life. And there's a sense in that it, there's a way that it's being constantly refined. Our attention to it, our relationship to it goes through uh, a constant uh, refinement as our practice unfolds. So it, it's really an ongoing uh, engagement, exploration in our lives, in our practice. And as I said, the Buddha described it as the very basis, the very foundation, and also as an ongoing way that it informs our understanding. There's a lovely teaching in one of the collections called the Anguttara Nikaya. And in this teaching, um, the Buddha's attendant, his cousin Ananda, has asked him this question. He said, what, Lord, is the benefit of virtuous ways of conduct and what is their reward? And uh, I'll just summarize what the Buddha replied to him. He said, uh, Hence, Ananda, virtuous ways of conduct have non-remorse as their benefit and reward. Non-remorse has gladness as its benefit and reward. Gladness has joy. Joy has serenity. Serenity has happiness as its benefit and reward. Happiness has concentration, and concentration has knowledge and vision of things as they really are, as its benefit and reward. And knowledge and vision of things as they really are leads to disenchantment and dispassion. And these lead to 
knowledge and vision of liberation. And so in this way, Ananda, virtuous ways of conduct lead step by step to the highest realization, the deepest understanding. There's a book by uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, teacher some of you may be familiar with. It's called For a Future to be Possible. It's actually quite a, a powerful title, For a Future to Actually be Possible. And uh, it's an exploration of these precepts of our ethical conduct. He calls them the five wonderful precepts. He has that way of talking. This is uh, something he said in that book. He said, the five wonderful precepts are love itself. To love is to understand, protect, and bring well-being to the object of our love. The practice of the precepts accomplishes this. We protect ourselves and we protect one another. That's really a beautiful way to see uh, these trainings, this intention, to see it as actually an act of love, a manifestation of love. And as Rebecca was speaking about last night, our, our uh, practice, metta, and, and you could say um, holding the precepts as a manifestation of that, they lead to this uh, quality, this gift, this offering of fearlessness in the world. Protect us in this way. This great gift of fearlessness is a, a beautiful manifestation of the way this uh, keeping the precepts, our conduct is an act of love. And then there's another phrase that I, I left out in the, uh, of the beginning part here that uh, points to uh, the, the life of uh, simplicity, life of renunciation that was practiced by the Buddha and his followers at that time. It's practiced by uh, nuns and monks today. It goes like this, the translation. Content with little, easily maintained, not doing too much and lightly engaged, thoughtful with a peaceful demeanor and modest without greed among worldly things. There's something for all of us to uh, look at in this. This encouragement, this um, pointing towards uh, simplicity towards renunciation, towards care and mindfulness with how we live in the world, how we use resources for one example of that. You know, this really bears attention for us. It's part of what I see in this idea for a future to actually be possible. You know, how much we use, how much we really need. You know, we're, we're a voracious species and there are lots of us, right? And we want all the best stuff. And we don't leave much for anyone, <laughs> any of the other kinds of beings. We take all the good stuff. And you know, we, we live with these economic systems that are, are founded on continual growth as though that would ever be sustainable. You know, and then we foul the air, the water, we turn the landscape into a desert. I don't want to be depressing here, but you know, we, we wouldn't tolerate this kind of behavior on the part of another species. We would rub them out as a terrible pest. You know, if squirrels were behaving the way we do, we would, they would be, a, you know, they would be a lost cause. We would, we would eradicate those little furry beasts. 
But, you know, we somehow hold ourselves apart as though we're not, it doesn't apply to us. And we don't often ask ourselves, what do I need right now? Right now in this moment, what do I really need in order to be happy, to be content, to feel complete? You know, we see what we lack. And there's a lot of conditioning around uh, this. And the world of advertising is, is um, you know, its whole thrust, its whole raison d'etre is to um, point out to us all that we don't have that we need in order to be happy. But if we really look, we might find that actually we don't need all that much to be happy, to be content, and that a life of simplicity actually brings its own kind of blessing and happiness, kind of contentment. Then in the second section, which is the longer part, the, the main really middle section, it's quite long of this uh, sutta, is, uh, it relates to the uh, samadhi part, the bhavana part of the Eightfold Path, this mind development. You could say this is the uh, development of mind and heart, and, and this is actual meditation practice. And the first word, I said this is the karaniya metta sutta. This word karaniyam means to be done. So it's loving kindness to be done, teaching the discourse on loving kindness which is to be done is the full translation of the, the name of this sutta. So um, in the same way that the chanting we do to end the day in the evenings is actually the doing of it is metta practice. The, the, do, the, the middle part of this sutta is practicing, was taught as a practice. And I find even to chant it in the way I did for me is a metta practice has a heart-opening um, quality there, just in doing that. I'll go through the first part of that. <clears throat> Let one cultivate the thought, may they be secure and profoundly well. May all beings be happy in themselves. Whatever living beings exist, without exception, whether weak or strong, whether tall, large, middle-sized or short, whether very subtle or very gross, whether visible or invisible, dwelling far away or not far away, whether born or not yet born, may all beings be happy in themselves. And that's where I stopped in the chanting was at that uh, second, may all beings be happy in themselves. Some. Sabesata bhavantu sukitata. So this section is actually practice, and it it speaks directly to this inclusive quality. You know, a lot of effort made to um, get every possible kind of being in there. Right? They don't even have to be visible. They don't even have to be born. They get included there. It's boundless, unconditional whatever living beings exist. No exceptions there. You know, sometimes I, it says long, huge, middle-sized, short, minute, or bulky. I want them all in there. And this line that I said, sabe satabha vantu sukhi tata, usually it gets translated as, 
may all beings be happy or may all beings be at ease. But the translation I uh, read, which was again from Andy Olensky, he translates it as, may all beings be happy in themselves. He adds that in themselves at the end, which um, I think is a kind of an important uh, nuance to that. And he said this about that translation. This line adds the nuance that the attitude of loving kindness is entirely selfless insofar as the emphasis is upon wanting the other person to feel happiness. The wish that they feel happiness in themselves, not only in a way that might meet my approval or that serves my ends, but as a pure act of benevolence towards the other. This generosity of heart wishes others to be happy just as they are in themselves. It's not about me when we offer it to another. It's this generosity of heart wishes well to others and then we wish well to ourselves in the same way. It doesn't ask for anything in return. There's no, um, no movement towards some kind of self-benefit in that. <clears throat> so it's unconditional in this way. Others don't have to be a certain way. Beings are held as worthy of love just because they are sentient beings. And, you know, we don't have to prove ourselves worthy. We have to fix ourselves. I was talking in, in maybe in the group or to someone this morning. Right now, somewhere in the world, someone is sending metta to all beings. And that's all of you, all of us. We get to be in that category. And all we had to do to deserve to be one of all beings is to be alive, to be a sentient being. We can be, you know, the mess we are, the pathetic mess we are with our tragically flawed personalities and still be worthy of love. It's good news. It is. <laughs> You know, they're just putting it out there. If we get in the way of it, we get it. Open up to that. There's this poem, it's a lovely poem called Wild Geese by Mary Oliver. Kind of speaks to this and put it in there. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese, high in the clean blue air, are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over announcing your place in the family of things. Then the next few verses uh, of the teaching, there's a, a bit of a shift. It still is somewhat this middle part about the uh, meditation, the actual cultivation of mind and heart, but it has more a quality of a kind of commentary 
about our practice and, and some of the attitudes of the mind and the heart that are um, cultivated and, and addressed and um, explored as we do this practice. Um, there's a beautiful image in this, I'll, I'll read it in just a moment, of a mother caring for her child as an example of the quality of loving kindness and uh, very directly speaks to this unbounded nature, all directions without holding back. <clears throat> so this is a translation of the, this next section. Let none deceive another. Let no one think badly of anyone, either with anger or ill will. One would not wish suffering on others. Just as a mother would watch over her child, her one and only child with her life, in just the same way, develop a mind unbounded towards all living creatures. Develop a mind of loving kindness unbounded toward the entire world, above, below, and all the way around, with no holding back, no loathing, no enemy. Standing, walking, sitting, or lying down, as long as one is devoid of sleepiness, one would resolve upon this kind of mindfulness. This is known as sublime abiding here and now. So there's this, um, this way that it's, uh, you know, we're moving, we're working towards this unbounded quality in all directions. This, this mind, heart, as a mother looks after her child. And then this final uh, line in this section. This is, we've, we've spoken about metta as one of the four Brahma Viharas, these divine abidings, divine abodes, abiding in that quality. Sublime, sometimes it says, maybe that word is better for some of us, sublime abiding. And it says, this is known as sublime abiding here and now speaks to the, the immediacy of the practice at times. You know, in any moment when our mind and our heart is suffused with this quality of loving kindness, with friendliness, with care for ourselves, for another, in that moment, the, it is a divine, heavenly kind of abiding. And there's this quality of connection and ease and uh, completeness, wholeness in that. It might not last, but we touch into that. So it's immediate in, in that way. It's right here, right now. So then there's in the third part of the uh, sutta, this is like the, the wisdom section of sila samadhi panya, panya wisdom. And it points to the uh, liberating possibility, the, the kinds of transcendent and liberating possibility of the practice of loving kindness. In this part, uh, speaks about one who has developed the, the path, understanding to completion, a fully enlightened being, an arahant, fully liberated heart-mind. This is the, the tra- trajectory of our practice, no matter what kind of practice we m- might do. has a different tone, very different tone from the rest of the sutta. Shifts away from the practice and towards this wisdom and towards the understanding of liberating insight. Just one, word, one verse. 
without falling into mistaken views, endowed with insight and integrity, and guiding away greed for sensual things, one is not born again into this world. It's that section. And so there's, there's a touching on um, a couple aspects of, of liberating wisdom, of this kind of insight, understanding. And the first line speaks to this, without falling into mistaken views. Sometimes it's translated by not holding to wrong views, by not holding on to mistaken or wrong views. You know, these views that we may hold on to, they're they're limited fabrications. They may or may not actually reflect the truth of things. Often our views actually do more to uh, distort the truth, distort our understanding that lead us to clarity. And there are all kinds of ways we might look at this, examples of mistaken views that one might fall into or hold to. I'm just going to speak about one aspect of this understanding now. There's one fundamental kind of wrong or mistaken view that operates so much in our lives in the world. It really speaks to the heart of what the Buddha was teaching and the possibility of understanding that can free our hearts and minds. There's a, uh, an, uh, there's a teaching said that after his awakening, after his enlightenment, the Buddha uh, surveyed around the world. It was part of um, when he was finally deciding he would teach. At first he said, I'm not going to teach. It's too subtle. Nobody's going to get it. It's just going to be vexing. I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to hang out here and under the Bodhi tree. and um, you know, It's not going to be. It's just going to piss me off. So, um, but then, you know, he, he was convinced to um, look around. Someone, I'd said a deva, a Brahma god, said to have come down and said, you know, check it out. There's actually those who have but little pollen in their eyes, <laughs> little dust in their eyes, it goes. But I thought pollen was appropriate. There are those with but little dust in their eyes, and they will understand. And it said that he surveyed the world and saw this was true. And he saw that beings, uh, countless beings, who were trying their hardest to be happy, trying desperately to find happiness, and at the very same time doing the thing that brought them stress and suffering. And he saw that, um, that there's a misunderstanding, a mistaken view about what brings a deep kind of real lasting happiness. And this kind of view is, is a view that takes that which is incapable of providing a la- source of lasting happiness to be capable of doing that. And you know, we all want happiness. And this is a universal wish. It's actually a beautiful, inherently lovable wish, the wish to be happy. And and sometimes we use this in our metta practice. We reflect on our wish to be happy. Just as I wish to be happy, may you be happy. We find connection through that wish. We can use this. It's a beautiful wish. We all want to be happy. But it's worth looking to see what do we mean by that. And what, what is this? often elusive thing we call happiness. 
And one way we, we often relate to this is we, we look at happiness as pleasant feelings in our body and mind. You know, light, pleasant physical sensations, light, happy mind states, happy. We find it in that. And conversely, we want to avoid what's unpleasant, what we find painful, disagreeable. You know, these are natural things. You know, we don't want to suffer. We don't need to go looking for trouble. But then what happens is that our strategy for finding happiness becomes this quest to string together as many pleasant feelings in a row as possible, while at the same time trying desperately to avoid any unpleasant feelings. That's what we wind up trying to do a lot of the time. And it's not that there's something wrong with having pleasant experiences. You know, that's not the point of this understanding. You know, and given how, how hard life is, they're good to have. It's nice to have them. But we're not going to be able to arrange life so that we only have pleasant experiences, so that it's always the way we like it. We can't pull that off for very long. You know, and that no matter what, we're all going to get the range of joys and sorrows, of pain and pleasure, of happiness and sadness. You know, that's just the way life is. We get all of that. Life isn't amenable to our will. Let me only have happy thoughts. It doesn't work. We can't control it in that way, no matter how hard we try. And so if we open to this understanding, then it can steer us towards seeking something that might actually be reliable. It can lead us towards seeking a deeper kind of happiness, happiness of peace. Hmm. So this practice of metta, of loving kindness, when we really connect, connect with this, we find that it has, there's a profoundly liberating aspect to it and that it actually can lead us to freedom. The next line in, in this last section uh, speaks of, of one endowed with insight and integrity, you know, one whose wisdom is fully developed. And there's the implication then, this quality of d- in deep integrity, that there's um, becomes less and less ability to um, cause harm, to uh, act in ways that bring more suffering in the world with intentionally doing that. This, this quality of um, highly developed ethical conduct or attention to how we live. And when these energies of, of greed, hatred, and delusion, you could say, the, these uh, energies that lead us, lead to harm, to suffering in our mind, in our lives, in the world, those, in the case of one fully awakened, those have been uprooted. They no longer hold sway over the mind and the heart. They're not arising there. Or if they are arising, they have no power. And this, there's an organic process that happens as our understanding deepens, where our attention to um, our actions becomes more and more refined. 
just a natural result. There's less ability to intentionally cause harm. It just doesn't happen, doesn't arise. Then the next line, this one who is endowed with insight integrity, free from all sense desires. Freed from this power of craving that is seen in these teachings as the root cause of suffering. This is what keeps us bound to the the wheel of samsara, wandering endlessly, life after life. And so then the final line, not born again into this world. uh, The way that is described, one no longer is bound to endless wandering through confusion and ignorance. And it's really, I think, fitting, appropriate that the, the sutta ends this way because this is, this is what the Buddha was always teaching. He said, I teach suffering the end of it. I teach liberation of heart. Always, it just came at it from different ways, but that was the only thing he was ever really interested in. It's freedom for beings. And so that's what our practice is about. It's what any real spiritual path is about. It's about the transformation of the mind and the heart. You could say, in a way, it's the process of bringing the mind and the heart together. And so love and freedom then are are intertwined. They're inextricably woven together. This is a quotation from uh, Krishnamurti. Speaks to this. When the heart enters into the mind, the mind has quite a different quality. It is really then limitless, not only in its capacity to think, to act efficiently, but also in its sense of living in a vast space where one is part of everything. Meditation is the movement of love, and it isn't the love of the one or of the many. It is like water that anyone can drink out of any jar, whether golden or earthenware. It is inexhaustible. Without love, there is not freedom. Without love, freedom is merely an idea which has no value at all. And so we do this practice, this metta practice, this cultivation of the heart of loving kindness. We do it for its own sake, for this beautiful, wholesome mind state. We also do it as a support for the practice of liberation, as a source of of uh, strength and courage in our lives as we undertake this profound exploration as we walk this path. It's really an essential aspect of the practice of freedom. It forms not only, it forms a crucial ground on which the practice rests, it allows the practice to unfold, it brings qualities of kindness, acceptance, patience, and our practice won't deepen without these. We have to have these. It, it has the characteristic of softening our heart and mind, makes it more pliable, more open, puts us at ease. And when our minds, when our hearts are, are open and, and gentle and pliable, then there's more space for wisdom to arise. It serves as the ground for clarity for the arising of wisdom. And so this qual- this metta practice, this quality of heart and mind, it's not, it's, it's not only compatible with 
the liberation practice, it's essential. It enhances the movement towards understanding. And so you could say in in a real essential way, the practice of freedom is the practice of love. And the practice of love is the practice of freedom. And we start to see more and more that these two flow together naturally. You know, they're like currents in the same river or like strands in the same cable. And we reach a place where they come completely together and we see ultimately they're just, they're one and the same thing. They aren't different. But it's important to bear in mind as we as we practice here on a retreat like this that that this um, loving kindness practice, any of our meditation practices that are offered, that we undertake, they're a a practice of purification. Purification is part of that unfolding. And a lot of the time, our practice, it doesn't feel like loving kindness, does it? Anyone have some non-loving experiences today (laughs) at all? You know, everything comes up, a lot of it comes up that isn't very beautiful to see. It's difficult, it's painful at times. And we have to be careful that we're not judging ourselves or this practice too harshly when this happens, if this happens. And one thing I find useful is um, to think of, of forming these intentions, and we do when we practice metta meditation, it's like planting seeds. And one teacher once said that they actually imagined with each phrase, if they were doing metta using phrases, as they're putting a seed in with each phrase, planting a seed. And these, these seeds that we plant with these powerful intentions in our minds and hearts, they'll bear fruit, they'll sprout their, and bear fruit in their own time. We can't force them to come up and grow. You know, it's like a flower bud. We can't force it to open. If we try to open it, we'll just destroy it. We'll tear it apart. And so we have to be mindful of expectations we might have about how things should look or feel. And these qualities of patience and gentle perseverance and letting go of expectations are really crucial for us. And there are times when, when what we connect with is really deep suffering. You know, we're supposed to be bathing ourselves and the world in love and light, and, and all we feel is pain, dukkha. Sometimes that's what we touch, that's what comes up in our own heart and mind and the world around us. Sometimes it feels really huge. It can feel overwhelming, it can feel like a hopeless situation sometimes. And then compassion is the the response. Care in the face of this. Kindness in the face of that suffering. Compassion is the heart of love turned towards suffering. The response of love in the face of suffering. It's a courageous quality of heart because it's willing to feel it. And the word courage comes from the same word as heart. Cuori in Italian, corazón in Spanish. I forget the Latin, cuore, something like that in Latin. It's 
that that's the root of courage, heartfulness. It's a good thing to remember. So a lot of what we're doing here is, is cultivating courage, heartfulness with this practice. It allows us to uh, face these difficulties. And sometimes if it's too much, we actually, the wise thing to do is to turn away from it a bit for times. To come to some balance by seeking out something that's more pleasant or turning to the good that's there. Because there's lots of that too. It's not only one way. And there's beauty in the world. There's goodness. There's goodness in our own hearts. And, and we have lots of blessings. And sometimes it's really good to turn to those things when we feel like we're getting out of balance with what's difficult. And I think it's really important also to remind ourselves that we're not, we're not somehow discovering something that's outside out there that we get and then we somehow put it in side with this practice. You know, we're just uncovering something that's already there. This heart of love, it's already there just gets covered over at times. So we're just shining a light on this natural capacity of the heart and mind. Hmm. There's another um, quality or something that comes up in this practice, sometimes it really comes up strongly. It's directly related to the practice of metta. I'll speak about it a little bit tonight. Maybe we'll touch on it more over the next days, but uh, it's vitally important to our happiness. And this is the uh, quality, the practice of forgiveness. Sometimes this is something that we really have to engage with in, in our meditation, in our spiritual life, and often with metta really comes up. We can uh, think of forgiveness as um, this practice of looking at and and then letting go of suffering that comes from anger, resentment, from guilt, from holding on to grudges that come from past hurts, memories. It's important to remember that forgiveness doesn't mean condoning unskillful actions. You know, there are actions that are not forgivable. This is true. But we can start to forgive beings, beings who act out of confusion and pain and cause suffering as a result. Because we all know what it's like to act from confusion and pain, don't we? I do. I've done it and caused harm in the world and have uh, regretted (laughs) actions, things that I have said and done out of confusion and pain. We all know this place in our heart, times when we have been suffering and confused and have acted and have caused harm. So this isn't something that's outside of our understanding. So we can start to forgive that confusion and suffering in other beings not actions that may be unforgivable. Because when we hold on to things, hold on to resentments, grudges, then we're letting the past dictate who we are in the present moment. 
We lose a lot of power in that. And we, we lose sight of the fact that how we feel in this moment actually ultimately it doesn't depend on outer conditions that, that it's up to us, that we have some choice in this. And so we can let go, we can start to let go of the burden and the weight of suffering that comes from holding on to past hurts. We don't feed them through resentment and anger by actually intentionally practicing forgiveness. And we have to be really careful and gentle how we do this. And you know, we can't change what happened in the past, but we can work with and change how we want to live in the present. And someone, I read this somewhere, someone defined forgiveness as giving up all hope of a better past. I think it's really a good, uh, something really useful in that. And we don't, there's no hope of getting a better past. There's the practice that um, those of us who've spent time in, especially in some of the monasteries in Asia, there's a practice whenever you've been at a place for a period of time and you're going to leave, often at the end of a period of retreat, there's a practice of, of offering and asking for and offering forgiveness then for anything that one might have done that caused harm, for any hurt that one might have received. We might, this is a practice we might begin sometimes if this is, is, uh, is up for us, if this comes up. If I have harmed anyone, if I have harmed you in thought, in word, in deed, I ask for your forgiveness. And I freely forgive anyone who has harmed me. Sometimes we have to do this for ourselves. We have to offer forgiveness to ourselves and ask for it. And just, you know, it's, it might take a while for this to start to seem to bear fruit. You know, it's not going to happen immediately just because we decide it's a good idea to start forgiving, to undertake this practice. So again, it's this quality of planting these seeds and this, this aspiration, this intention to practice forgiveness to work with this is the really the, the crucial first step in that. Hmm. Well, maybe one of the most beautiful expressions of uh, this quality of loving kindness, of metta, is um, you can find it in the uh, cultivation of what's called bodhicitta. Bodhicitta means literally bodhi, awakened, citta, mind, heart. Put those two together in citta. And on the relative level in the world, this quality is manifests as compassion, which I've just been, which I spoke about. The movement of the heart in response to suffering. In some traditions, there's undertaking what are called bodhisattva vows to uh, save all beings, to, to dedicate one's practice, to vow to uh, bring all beings to liberation out of compassion. On a more, you could say, um, more ultimate kind of level than this quality of bodhicitta, the awakened heart, mind, 
points to the nature of the mind itself, the empty, aware nature of mind, when it is free of the concept of self and other. And in this uh, awakened mind and heart, then there are no barriers or boundaries, limits, no limits to the expression of love and kindness of care and compassion in that. No boundaries there. You could say the awakened heart. You could say our practice is a practice of extending the boundaries of what we find acceptable, extending where we can offer love, gently moving that outwards. And then in the liberated mind and heart, there are no longer any boundaries there. And so in in a simple way, then this quality of of bodhicitta reflects the understanding that ultimately our happiness and the happiness of others is the same thing. And so with this kind of understanding in mind, if we can connect with this, then we can approach our practice um, with a motivation that we awaken for the benefit of all beings. We can offer our practice to be for the benefit and consciously dedicated in this way. This is something I've, I really have undertaken for myself as a practice now for quite a while, quite a few years. You know, and when I bow and come into the hall and bow, I bring an aspiration into my mind then. I say words something like this, may my life and practice be in service to and for the benefit of all beings. I actually bring those words into my mind. And I, when I first started doing it, there was this little voice that would come that would say, yeah, right, who are you kidding? As if, as if you could, that were possible. This diminishing, dismissive voice. But I would just do it anyway. I just kept doing it. And I've noticed a real shift over time. And that little voice has, it mostly has stopped. At least I've stopped believing it. It's the voice of Mara, the voice of old habits. It's not the voice of wisdom. And, and this aspiration has really become a powerful part of my practice, powerful understanding, a powerful motivation. So I just offer this to you as, as a possibility. So I'll close tonight with a few uh, lines from Shantideva in the uh, Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. It speaks to this quality of heart. For all those ailing in the world, until their every sickness has been healed, may I myself become for them the doctor, nurse, the medicine itself. Raining down a flood of food and drink, may I dispel the ills of thirst and famine. And in the ages marked by scarcity and want, may I myself appear as drink and sustenance. For sentient beings, poor and destitute, may I become a treasure ever plentiful and lie before them closely in their reach, a varied source of all they might need. 
my body thus and all my goods besides, and all my merits gained and those to be gained. I give them all away withholding nothing to bring about the benefit of beings. Like the earth and the pervading elements, enduring like the sky itself endures. For boundless multitudes of living beings, may I be their ground and sustenance. Thus for everything that lives, as far as are the limits of the sky, may I provide their livelihood and nourishment until they pass beyond the bounds of suffering. So we'll just keep sitting quietly for another moment or two. Let these words drift off and, uh, and I'll ring the bell in just a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.